0: Let's turn in the scriptures to Galatians chapter 3. I'm praying that the Lord powerfully speaks to us this morning. That he instructs us and that he reproves us and corrects us and trains us in living how we should before him. Today marks our fourth study in Paul's letter to the Churches in Galatia. We're going to be studying the beginning of chapter 3. I've explained just about every time I've taught this that Paul wrote the letter probably right around 48 AD. That's less than 20 years after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. And Paul wrote it to churches in the southern region of Galatia churches that he and Barnabas had planted a few years early in the cities of Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Paul wrote it because the Christians in this region were beginning to embrace a distorted gospel. That's why this letter has been called the battle for the gospel. Many of the converts in this southern Galatian region were Jews, They were converted out of Judaism. So it is not surprising that soon after these churches had been planted, a teaching started to gain influence that mixed Christianity and Judaism. It was a hybrid version of Christianity that mixed in obedience to the law. These new disciples, these young Christians had teachers come in and start saying you don't need to totally give up Judaism in fact Judaism has been around for centuries for millennia and what you need is not just to embrace Christianity and reject Judaism you need to mix the two you need Jesus to forgive your sins yes but you also need to commit yourself to following the Mosaic law you need to be circumcised you need to observe the Sabbath you need to eat kosher and so on. These teachers claimed, and we're going to get to this especially in the latter chapters of Galatians, these teachers claimed, if you follow Jesus and then just throw away the Old Testament law, then Jesus actually is leading you to a life of lawlessness. That's going to be the main emphasis of Paul in chapters 5 and 6. That's the sort of teaching that was gaining traction in these churches in the region of Galatia. It was a blend of trusting Jesus and obeying the law in order to be right with God. And if you're in Galatians and you just look back at chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Paul calls this a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. There's only one gospel message that God has designed to rescue sinners from God's wrath, from God's just wrath for our law-breaking. There's just one message that God has designed to reverse our sentence of condemnation and declare us to be right in His sight and forever reconciled to Him. There's just one message, and it's not this hybrid version. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul has been writing autobiographically. It's his personal autobiography. He explained how the gospel had been given to him directly from God. He explains how he preached it for more than a decade without any education from the apostles in Jerusalem. And he explains that after 13 years, the apostles did examine the message that he was preaching among the Gentiles and they approved it without reservation. And finally, we studied last week in the second half of chapter 2 that Paul's gospel actually corrected the apostles, specifically Peter, the lead apostle, when Peter was not walking in step with the gospel. This has all been personal autobiography where Paul is making the point, my gospel is from God. It didn't come from men. It didn't come from the apostles. It didn't come from me. It came from God and my history, my personal history proves it. After that autobiographical section, then, Paul gives us a theology section. He writes theologically in chapters 3 and 4, and that's what we embark on today. And then in chapters 5 and 6, he is going to write a section full of life application, explaining how faith in Jesus does not lead to a life of lawlessness, but instead it leads to a life that is controlled by the Spirit And the Spirit produces in us a servant-minded love. That's chapters 5 and 6. So he's got personal autobiography. Theology that's rooted in the Scriptures. And practical life application for what this means for daily living. Does it allow lawlessness? No, it drives us toward a life of unselfish love. That's Paul's thinking throughout this letter. It's what he's writing So we are now going to read Galatians 3, 1-14. This is where Paul begins his section of reflecting theologically. He's going to reason from the Scriptures and prove that his message, his gospel message is true. And this hybrid version of believing in Jesus and obeying Moses is no gospel at all. Paul writes to Christians, the Christians he loves right out of the gate he says oh foolish Galatians who has bewitched you it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified now let me ask you this and just this did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith So in this section, this theological reflection, Paul is essentially going to ask three questions. And the first one is this. You see it there in verse verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? How did you receive God's Spirit? Was it by obeying the law or was it by trusting Christ? He goes on in verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now going to be perfected by the flesh, by your own efforts? Remember, did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, he's reminding them of all the persecution that they faced in the early days of their conversion. You can read about it, and we will turn back there in Acts 13 and 14. Verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you And he who works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Here Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6. And with that added thought about Abraham's faith here at the end of verse 6, Paul leads into his second theological question. Not only how did you receive God's Spirit, but... How did you become Abraham's children? Was it by obeying the law or by trusting in Jesus? Paul writes verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, not by works, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and here he quotes at least Genesis 12, if not Genesis 18 and Genesis 22, in you shall all the nations be blessed so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith paul is basically saying how did the blessings that god intended for all creation and that god promised to all nations how did they come to you gentiles they came when you followed Abraham in faith. It wasn't that you needed the the works of the law, all all the obedience to the Mosaic Covenant. No, you followed Abraham by faith. And then Paul flips the consideration. He's thinking about how God's blessing, promised to Abraham, came to all nations. And he flips it and starts thinking about how the law's curse is upended, how the law's curse is overthrown. And this is his third consideration in verses 10 to 14. How did you get freed from, redeemed from? How did you escape your enslavement to the curse of the law? Was it by obeying the law or was it by trusting Christ? Verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, here he quotes Deuteronomy 27. Cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And he quotes Habakkuk 2. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, he explains from Leviticus 18, the one who does them shall live by them. And now Paul explains the only way to be freed from the law's curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written in Deuteronomy 21, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And then Paul ties together all three arguments or three questions. So that in Christ Jesus, in the Messiah, that is Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This is theology at its finest. Paul is tracing the primary themes of the Bible, referring to the central texts and tying Scripture with Scripture. In these 14 verses, he quotes the Old Testament at least six times to prove that his gospel message is the one message that can actually free you from the curse of the law, restore the blessings of creation to you, even though you are a Gentile. And it is the one message through which the promised Holy Spirit is given. I would summarize the main idea of these 14 verses like this. All who trust Christ, note that word trust, because the word faith in this section appears 10 times. All who trust Christ receive God's Holy Spirit, become Abraham's eternally blessed children, and are forever redeemed from the law's curse. Paul is reflecting theologically on the blessings that come as a result of his gospel, and he demonstrates that it is his gospel centered on Christ apart from any works of the law. The only way the gospel's power and its blessings get activated in the life of a person is through faith in the Messiah. That's his point. Now, because we are studying theology, we are going to have to slow down just a bit. And today, I'm only going to take verses 1 through 6. Lord willing, next week, I'll take verses 7 through 9 and 10 through 14 before we observe the Lord's Supper. But we're going to slow down just a bit today. Paul's first question to the Galatians and to us is essentially, how did you receive God's Spirit? How did you receive God's Spirit? Was it by obeying the law or was it by trusting Jesus? And this is going to be the question that we consider today. Look back at verse 1. There Paul confronts the Galatians as foolish, thoughtless people. And he wonders if a spell has been cast over them. Now truly, and I think Paul's words hint at this, those who embrace false doctrine are experiencing to some degree demonic influence. And he's saying, are you letting demonic teaching control you, intoxicate you? What has happened to you so that your thinking is now twisted? And he reminds them at the end of verse 1, of the essential message that he preached. He says, just like he does in 1 Corinthians 2-2, the essential message that I preached to you while I was with you is Christ crucified. Christ was portrayed gloriously before you as all you need. Now that is an example for every teacher and pastor in the church. Whether we are counseling individuals whether we are teaching Sunday schools, whether we're leading Bible studies, whether we're preaching in the church's primary gatherings, our goal, no matter what text or topic we preach, should be to draw people's attention toward the Messiah who died for us and billboarded God's justice and love. Paul says, Galatians, that's what I did while I was among you. That's what I constantly did. You saw Christ crucified. It's all I need. And then he, in verses 2 to 5, asks this central question. Now let me ask you, how did you receive God's spirit? Did you receive God's spirit because you kept obeying? Or did you receive God's spirit when you trusted in Christ crucified? It's a great question. He knows that the Galatians know the answer to this question. He knows that the Galatians know that they experienced the Spirit's power when they put their faith in Jesus, when they trusted in Christ crucified. How did they know? And I want to ask, how would you know? What if Paul came to you and said, when did you receive the Spirit? When did you receive the Spirit? Was it through your obedience or was it when you trusted Jesus? How would you know how to answer that question? Now at this point, I'd like you to keep your hand in Galatians chapter 3. And I would like you to flip over to Acts chapter 13. And I would like for you to keep a hand in each. Because Acts 13 and 14 are going to explain the history we looked at this the first week in some detail acts 13 and 14 are going to explain the history of what took place in these galatian cities in order for these churches to be planted so keep a hand in galatians or keep your your ribbon if you have one in your bible or a bookmark in one and now flip over to chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, Luke records the history of what happened in the southern Galatian city of Antioch. And this is not the Antioch in Syria, it's the Antioch in the the region of Pisidia. So it's called Pisidian Antioch. Starting in verse 16, so Acts 13, 16, Paul stands up in the synagogue, in the Jewish synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, And he starts preaching to the people who are gathered there. If you jump down to verse 23, you'll see that the center of his message is that King David had a son, had an offspring, had a descendant. That God brought to Israel, a savior, Jesus, just as he promised in the Davidic covenant. So his message is centering on Jesus. Jump down to verse 27. He says, but this man, Jesus, they didn't recognize, they didn't understand that the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they didn't understand that they actually fulfilled what was written about him by condemning him. And though they found, verse 28, though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And if you jump down to verse 39, this is where we get to the theme of Galatians, really. Paul explains, And by him, by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses wow he's preaching Christ he's preaching how Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures he's preaching how Christ can save you he can forgive your sins he's preaching Christ look down at verse 43 Luke records and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Wow. Verse 46 will be the last one that I read. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken first to you Jews, Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And verse 48 says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Hmm. Now, why do I read that background? It's because when we can hear Paul in Galatians 3 saying, did you receive God's spirit? How did you receive it? Many of us question, well, how would I know if I received God's Spirit? And the first way you'd know is if you've experienced the Spirit's illumination. If you've experienced the Spirit's illumination. What we're told about in Acts 13 is that Christ was portrayed. Christ crucified, risen. He was portrayed to these Galatians. And what happened? Many Jews many of the converts to Judaism, and many Gentiles believed. They believed. The Holy Spirit turned the light on to the personal significance of Christ crucified for every believer. In other words, the illumination, the the turning the light on, happened in people's hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. So people said... Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah, God's appointed King to reign forever on earth. That's Jesus. Jesus is the one whom I personally need to forgive my lawbreaking, all of my rebellion. I need Jesus and I want him. Jesus has the power of life. I want him. I want his forgiveness. I want the eternal life he offers. I don't want my sin anymore. I want him. If you've ever said that, the Spirit's at work in you. The Spirit has turned the light on in your heart personally, so that you say Jesus is God. He's glorious. I want him more than I want anything. I want him more than I want my sin. I want him more than I want life itself. If you want Jesus like that, if you trust Jesus like that, if you revere Jesus like that, the Spirit has illumined your heart. So the Spirit's illumination is the point of the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 2 that Paul's going to write a few years later. It's also beautifully captured In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, when Paul writes that God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that when you see Jesus, you say, he's the all-glorious God. He's the one I need, the one I want. Is God's Spirit at work in you like this? Has God's Spirit illumined you to the glory of Jesus? If you believe that Jesus is God, that he died for your sins, that he rose again, that you need him and want him more than anything, then the Spirit's at work in you. If you say, I mean, I know Jesus is a good teacher, I know Jesus is respected by a lot of people. I've just never quite understood what he could do for me or why I personally need him. And I would urge you to read the scriptures and ask God to turn the light on to your personal need for Jesus. You can read the Old Testament where Jesus is prophesied. You can read the New Testament where Jesus is described. You can read Luke which describes from Jesus' birth through his crucifixion to his resurrection and ascension. And you can pick up in Acts, which is also written by Luke, to describe how this message started going throughout the entire world within one generation. Read and beg God to turn the light on to your personal need for Jesus. The Spirit's work in Acts Every single believer is the mark of the New Covenant Church. This is distinctive. It's why the Bible is divided into Old Covenant and New Covenant. In the New Covenant, Jeremiah promised that every believer would be forgiven of all sin. That every believer would have the Spirit work in our hearts to make us tender toward God's Word. And that the Spirit would forever reconcile us to God. The power of the Spirit would not be limited to a select few members in the community like it was in the Old Testament, like kings would experience the Spirit's power or priests or prophets. The Spirit, no, Joel said, would be poured out on every believer. Everyone who seeks salvation by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus would experience the Spirit. The gift of the Spirit is for every believer and the first way in which we see him work is in illumination, in turning the light on in our hearts to the glory of Jesus. The second way the Spirit worked in the Galatian churches was in enduring joy. You see this if you're in Galatians 3. Paul indicates it in verse 4 when he asks, Did you suffer so many things in vain? He's pointing them back to their endurance of suffering. I'm going to ask you to flip back to uh, Acts 13 and look at verse 51. Acts 13, 51. It says that these churches had experienced persecution in verse 50, but they, Paul and Barnabas, shook the dust off of their feet against them and went to Iconium, basically saying, it's on you. We're moving on. And verse 52 says, And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That's a way of saying, joy was the mark of the Spirit's filling. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. It was joy because of the Spirit. Hmm. Every single believer, like the Galatians, has experienced the spirit's joy every single christian can testify that when we received christ when we called on the name of the lord jesus to save us when we saw in the cross the glory of god for our salvation we saw in it the justice of god and the love of god and we said jesus i need you your death is the only thing that can forgive my sins We were filled with a sense of joy. Joy that our sins were forgiven. No more guilt. Joy that death is not the end. That the same one who raised Jesus from the dead will raise us from the dead and glorify us and we will inherit forever life. Joy that we were reconciled to God. I've heard some people say that it's like my life went from black and white to color. Because it's like I went to work the next morning and I knew the creator. I was reconciled to God. There is joy in forgiveness, joy in life, joy in reconciliation with our maker. And this joy, many of you can testify, just like for the Galatians, carried you through so many early trials. Your family mocked you. Oh, you're that holy roller now. Oh, what? You're going to tell all of us that we're sinners? Your friends opposed you. Oh, you don't want to hang out with us anymore, huh? What carried you through the persecution you experienced? Joy. Enduring joy. The Spirit had given you forgiveness. Eternal life! Reconciliation with your Maker! The Spirit was given to you, just like it was to the Galatians, so that you could endure trials with joy. Another disciple, Peter, describes the same joy in another place in the New Testament. When he describes every Christian as being someone who, though not now seeing Jesus, believes in him, and rejoices in him with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, filled with the hope of glory. In other words, this kind of spiritual joy, this spirit-given joy, is not a mark of a handful of believers. If you have trusted in Christ, if you've called on the Lord Jesus to save you, then the Spirit has definitively given you joy. Joy in Jesus. The last mark of the Spirit's gift to every believer is one that we're going to take a little bit more time to work through, and it is the Spirit's confirmation. The Galatians experience the Spirit's confirmation of the apostles' gospel message through miracles. You see that in Galatians 3.5. So they were illumined to the glory of Jesus called out to him as Savior. The Spirit gave them joy in Jesus that endured suffering. And Paul then asks in verse 5, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by your obedience, or by your faith in Christ. The history, if you turn back to Acts 14, includes the kind of miracles that Paul's talking about. If you look, flip back to Acts chapter 14, if you look at the history there, chapter 14 verse 3 records that as Paul and Barnabas remained in Iconium, That's the second city they went to in the region of Galatia. Verse 3 says, they remained a long time there in Iconium speaking boldly for the Lord. They bore witness, or you might say confirmed with their, their testimony. They confirmed to the word of His grace as God granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So there in Iconium, as they preached the gospel, God enabled them to work miracles in a way that confirmed their message. God, as one translation puts it, confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. That's the NIV. So they moved from Iconium then, where they were performing signs and wonders that confirmed their message, to Lystra. Look at, Chapter 14, verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. They called Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. These people misinterpret the power that God was working through Paul and Barnabas, and they start worshiping Paul and Barnabas as gods, and Paul and Barnabas... Verse 18 says, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. And then persecution gets kicked up in this city as well. The Galatians, what I'm trying to show is that the Galatians had witnessed miracles of healing that confirmed the apostolic message of the gospel. And every believer today still stands on the gospel message That was confirmed by spirit-empowered miracles. This is what Paul is reflecting on with the Galatians. This means that the apostolic message of the gospel was confirmed as the apostles preached it. And we need no further confirmation. Confirmation was decisively given. If you want, next to Galatians 3.5, if it's not already noted in the margin... You can put in there Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 and 2 Corinthians 12, 12 where Paul and the writer to the Hebrews reflects on the works of the apostles that were given in that generation. The apostolic message that testified to Jesus as the only way to God has been confirmed. We need no further confirmation. Now, having said that, I want to explain that God can still work miracles of healing and sometimes does. Especially when the gospel is entering new territory, laying an apostolic foundation. This can happen. So, for example, I've almost finished reading this book, Killing Fields, Living Fields. It's about the gospel's groundbreaking advance in Cambodia. In 1921, about a year before Cambodia opened its borders to Protestant missionaries, the Lord began working very powerfully among the ethnic Khmers who lived just south of the Cambodian border in Vietnam. Don Cormac, the author, records how the church there started to form in the home of one Khmer couple named Mr. Prock. His wife was late in her pregnancy. Her name was Yen, and she was suffering from tetanus. She was convulsing in ways that people believed that she was demonized. Now, I think many of us know that tetanus is a bacterial infection that affects the nervous system, and it was within this decade of the 1920s that antibiotics would be developed, and that a tetanus vaccine would be developed. At this point, tetanus was a fatal disease that had no cure. Seven times, Mr. Prock paid to have the local spirit doctor perform miracles of healing over her. These were ceremonial healings. Cormac says... In elaborate and noisy ceremonies, these crews spat and sprayed water from their mouths over Yen's trembling body. They tied all kinds of spirit necklaces around her, and yet none of it was effective. Yen continued to decline. Her mouth, under the nervous disease, eventually locked up. The observer said her breathing became shallower and shallower. And those with her described what they heard. They said, We just heard a deathly rattle in the back of her throat. Because of the ineffectiveness of all of the treatments, the villagers concluded that Yen was contaminated with bad karma. Earlier that day, the Buddhists who were on the Proc's property had made fun of the Christian message of Jesus Christ. The Christians were known as Pwak Yesu, Pwak Yesu, the Jesus people, Jesus people. And they would sing Pwok Yesu, which was Pwak Granny Sue, Granny Sue, Granny Sue, instead of Yesu, Yesu. But that night, God brought those words back to Mr. Proc's mind when he was on the verge of suicide. Pwak Yesu, Pwak Yesu. And he went to find the Puok Yesu. These are the people who worship Jesus as God. He went out and he found them a few miles away and begged them to come to Yen's bedside. The villagers who were still at the house were astonished that Mr. Prok would stoop so low and ask these people to beg, Praya Yesu, King Jesus, praya Yesu that they would beg pray jesus for healing Cormac records one of the christians as simply and briefly as he knew how explained about the living creator god and about jesus his son the savior of all mankind in whose risen power they were now going to trust and then the christians asked if they could take all of the idolatrous necklaces off of yen and the Christians then prayed one by one. Cormac says, based on personal testimony, Proc noticed that as the Christians prayed, they used terms of high respect for God, as if they were in a king's palace, and yet they were speaking everyday market language of the Khmers. Proc felt no fear. Only a deep awareness that this heavenly father to whom all these prayers were being spoken was right there in the room with them. And Mr. Prock also noticed that the Christians never asked for money. When the Christians finished praying, they left and said to Mr. Prock, we will continue praying throughout the night. Around midnight, midnight, Yen came to her husband Tugging and pulling on his arm. She said, I can open my mouth. My mouth is open. Heavenly Father is the true God. We must believe in him. He's opened my mouth. Prock replied, yes, we will all believe in him now. And the next day, Mr. Prock announced to his community, we are turning to Preah Yesu, to King Jesus, for only he could save my life. And the Church of the Khmers, that would soon spread in Cambodia within one year, took root in the household of Mr. Prok, laying the foundation for the next generation. Now, I share that story to teach us to think rightly about these matters. Can God do that? Yes, praise God, He does that. Do we need God to do that? Not at all. We should not think that God must do that. The apostolic message has been confirmed. We need no further confirmation. You remember when Jesus was, ta- was telling the parable of the rich man who had gone to hell? And in hell, the rich man said, send back someone from the dead. Because then they'll believe, my brothers, who are all going their their own way, they'll believe if someone comes back from the dead. And in the parable, Abraham says, they have Moses, they have the prophets, they have everything they need to believe, and they won't believe even if someone comes back from the dead. We must not insist that God work these signs today. We should praise him when he does. We should trust because we have Moses and the prophets. We have the gospels and the apostolic writings. We have all we need to put our faith in Jesus. The main point of this passage is that the gospel's power is activated by faith, not by works. It's when you trust Jesus. It's not when you obey enough. The Galatians knew That the Spirit's power, the Spirit's power was given. It came on them when they trusted Jesus, not when they had obeyed enough. And this is what we all need right now. We need to understand that when we trusted Jesus, it was because the Spirit had illumined our hearts so that we saw Jesus as God, God become man, God who died in our place, and the only way we could be forgiven and granted eternal life. That's the Spirit working. The Spirit gave us enduring joy in Jesus, and God's Spirit confirmed the message about Jesus. The blessing of the Spirit did not come to those who obeyed enough. It came to those who believed Christ crucified. Christian, the only way you and I have received the Spirit is by faith. And just like Paul said at the end of chapter 2, so continue to live by faith. Don't become a legalist. Don't think God loves me today because I've been a good, good person. And don't think God has given up on me today because I've failed. That's the tendency of all of us. No. You receive the Spirit by faith, not by works. So don't live as if your works are establishing your relationship with God. Christian, keep your eyes fixed on the cross. It's there that your lawbreaking was paid for. Christians, keep your eyes fixed on the empty tomb. It's through that power that raised Jesus from the dead, at work in you, that you can walk a new kind of life. Christian, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus until you see him. That is what the Holy Spirit has been given to you to do, to spotlight Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus until you see him. He has promised, as we're going to sing in this next hymn, to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So keep walking by faith until you see him.